Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have David H. Sandler Award winner and best-selling author, Bill Bartlett. Bill, would you like to do a quick introduction to who you are and what qualifies you to talk about coaching? Thanks, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. I appreciate your invitation. I've been involved with Sandler for 25 years. I started in 1994 and was probably one of the last of the people to work with David Sandler himself before he unfortunately untimely passed away. In the 25 years, I've learned a lot. And, and I guess the, the issue is my business has gone from working out of an upstairs bedroom to something that touches lives all the way from Hong Kong to UK to uh, San Francisco. So it's a, been a wonderful run. And along the way, Training was an important part of that business, obviously, with Sandler Training. But I started learning about coaching from people who I was spending time with. And over the first 10 years of my business life, I developed a methodology for coaching that fit well with the Sandler system. And that was the genesis of the Sales Coaches Playbook, Breaking the Performance Code. And it's been out for a few years and doing quite well, I would say. Well, it's certainly a book that I always recommend to my management and leadership clients, anyone who is looking to build a team. And I also see it as a very useful tool for self-help because I think too few people spend time on coaching themselves or going out and getting a coach. And I think it works as a good litmus test to see whether or not the coach that you're just about to spend thousands of pounds on is any good. Let me start with a lot of people seem to see coaching as an event. And clearly, we both agree that that's a mistake. Why is it a process? And what happens if you do treat it as an event? Let's go to why it's a process first. And and maybe that's because human beings don't change. We get stuck. We actually resist change. We will transition if we can find a path to transition from the current state to a desired state. But Think of all the things in our lives that we've committed to change and our subconscious mind says, no, you're not. You're going to keep doing it. So that's the the biggest issue that I face when people sit in front of me is they're pretty much stuck in their own ways until in small steps, one pebble at a time, we start building a bridge for them to get to their new desired state. Why is it a process, not an event? Well, we can go there because most managers are fixers. Most managers believe that they have the magic dust to fix. So a salesperson will come to them and sit down and say, boss, I'm struggling with cold calling. And the manager will say, well, here's what I did. Bang, 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 bang. And in three seconds, almost in a name that tune type model, they believe they've magically fixed the salesperson. And so that's a key uh, element that made me sit down and say, well, that's never going to work. It's just going to frustrate. Well, I think there's even a step before that, which is that in my experience, an awful lot of people spend their time in vast amounts of denial they don't even get past the point of wanting to or look at change because they deny there's a problem. How can a manager identify that? What are the clues and what do they need to do in order to get past it? There's a change curve that I've built in the book that begins with denial, to your point, and goes to resistance and then moves to exploration and then finally at commitment. And so we use the BAT triangle to, to identify denial. And so Sandler's behavior, attitude, and technique triangle is one of the keys to helping people understand that. So a good coach will sit down and help analyze the behavior of the salesperson. And in that behavior, they'll find things that maybe the salesperson isn't even aware of, but some they're aware of and they deny they have to do. Attitude. I find that many times attitude causes denial. The belief that I don't have to do that, that magically things will transform. And lastly, technique or skill. So behavior, attitude, and technique are usually the smoke detectors of success or failure. 
And in the first coaching session, a good manager has to sit down and create a gap analysis that begins with as is where the salesperson is and winds up with to be where growth occurs. That makes a lot of sense. So tell me this, if we look at the way most managers coach, it does tend to be an event. It tends to be in fixed mode. And they seem to lack any form of structure, cadence, tools. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Managers believe that coaching is a time drain, that spending time with someone over time prevents them from doing their job. And in that belief, they denigrate or they lower the impact of coaching because when someone comes to them, realizing that in my world, it takes three solid coaching sessions to impact change. And then 90 days after that to imprint it, the manager isn't willing to invest that time. It's a matter of sitting there and sprinkling fairy dust on them and saying, just go out and do this and it will work. Salesperson now has two chances to to change. One, do I believe what the manager said? Well, yes or no, that's going to allow me to do what they recommend or not. And two, do I have baggage between my ears that will prevent me from doing it? So belief and baggage are kicked in immediately. And if belief and baggage are negative, it doesn't matter what the sales manager says, the salesperson is going to do it. I've entitled this interview with you, The AI of Sales Coaching. And that's really looking at two critical areas, attitude and identity. I absolutely accept technique and behavior are fundamental. But in my experience, unless we deal with the belief systems, unless we deal with the values, uh, the attitudes, then no amount of training is going to prevent them from unraveling everything that you've tried to put in place. So let's spend a little bit more time talking about attitude. What is attitude in the context of the Samba definition? It's typically belief in self and environment. When we look at belief in self, that's the driver of somebody's attitude. How strongly do they feel about themselves? What's their level of confidence? What's their level of awareness? Do they work on themselves or is everything an external issue? And then the belief about the environment, the company they work for, the marketplace they're in, things like that. And so if those two beliefs are broken, somebody's attitude isn't going to be productive. It's going to be negative. And Chad Helmstetter, who's written a great book that I'd recommend everybody on creative thinking and strategic thinking, talks to us about self-talk. And his comment is 87% of the voices we hear in our head, unless I'm the only one who hears voices, are negative. Tell us things that we shouldn't do, we can't do, that aren't going to work. And most people don't have the strength to overcome those negative voices, so they just believe them. And what can coaches do in order to help people, first of all, identify and recognize those voices and then modify them so that they're serving them positively instead of holding them back? Well, we look in Sandler's world, as you know, as someone's identity and what are they doing for their identity? Those will help uncover the voices. But one of the major things with voices is they come from scripting and people tend to believe their scripts. Scripts happen early in life. I can remember my father telling me that we don't talk about money in our house because it was rude. And so as I grew older, I found it difficult when I was in sales to talk about money. Well, that created a script for me. So a good manager sits down and has a good, vulnerable, trust-based conversation with a salesperson to say, let's talk about some of those things that maybe you've lived in your life that are scripty type behavior that are preventing you from executing what you're supposed to do. And my example for cold calling is a, is a good one in that don't talk to strangers is something we all heard our whole life when we were growing up. Yet in cold calling, we have to stick it out there and talk to strangers all the time. Absolutely. So 
again, let's talk a little bit more about identity and vulnerability. One of the things that I find is that when I ask people for their definition of vulnerability, it invariably has a connotation of weakness, of being lacking. And I realized quite early on in my career with Sandler that vulnerability, the word vulnerable comes from the Latin word vulnerabilis, which to make, means make yourself woundable and do it anyway. That takes massive courage. And I think I may even have learned it from you very early on in my Sandler career, where you said that if you want someone else to be vulnerable, you yes. have to be vulnerable first. Yes. So talk to me about that. I look at vulnerability as, as openness, as the ability to open yourself to the world. And people who won't be vulnerable are pretty much closed off in the world and block any type of input, whether it's a manager or whether it's a salesperson. So that openness is really critical because it creates open thinking. And so how many people do we know that are really open to new ideas and to suggestions and to give comments that happen down deep in their gut, yet are emotional in their base? So when we look at those things, that openness has to be uh, displayed by the coach or manager as well as by the salesperson. And you know, one of the ways that we create that vulnerability is the three Ps of coaching, potency, permission, and protection. A manager has to take their potency out of play when they have a coaching session with someone and act as an equal. Second, the permission. They have to give the salesperson permission to speak freely without reprisal. And reprisal is, is going to be a key. And that's about protection. Protection is whatever you say stays in this room. I'm not going to come back and beat you up with it later. So potency, permission, and protection is the key to vulnerability in a manager's part as well as in the salesperson's part. It builds comfort and trust. I'm going to take a step slightly further back because one of the things that a lot of my clients worry about is wrong hires. In the interview process, how can you identify whether or not someone has vulnerability, whether they have that growth mindset, whether they're open to change rather than being the finished article? I ask them to share failures and failures in their personal life as well as in their professional life. Some people can intellectualize failures and other people turn them into emotion. But the challenge of talking about a failure is not about what they're saying. It's about their body language and tonality and the message that they're delivering it in. And so someone says, I missed my quota and that's a failure. Well, that's an intellectual comment. Failure really happens as to what happened in their mind after they missed their quota and were reprimanded for it. Did they go into a shell? Did it create stigma? Or were they able to bounce back immediately? And so the second question I ask after failure is, what steps do you take to bounce back after you've struggled with something or something hasn't worked? The last part of that is I put them through a star model, which says, I'm going to ask you to create a situation where you fail. That's the S. I'm going to ask you to tell me the tactics you used to deal with it and the action, that's the A, you chose to overcome it. And what was the result of the, of the situation, tactic, and action? And so what I'm asking them to do is to build a story about vulnerability without asking them to do that. Very interesting. So situation, tactic, action. action. And result. And result. Okay. And then taking that into, you've hired this person now. What sort of advice would you give to a new manager where they've identified, they haven't got the finished article, 
they've maybe got a good B player who's in that the top end of the middle 60%. What kind of onboarding process should they put in place and tie in with the coaching process? I teach a 30, 60, 90 day process. And in the first 30 days, the manager's role is to make sure that the salesperson is in learning mode. And learning mode is key. The sales manager has to know what are the things that this salesperson has to learn in the first 30 days that will make them believe that success is on their horizon. In the next 30 days, from learning to execution, now the manager sets up an activity or a cookbook for the course of the next 30 days to watch the salesperson execute what they've learned. And in that observe, in the first 60 days, the 30 plus 30, I'm going to recommend approximately six coaching sessions of about 30 minutes. In the first 30, the three coaching sessions will be to check in on learning. In the second 30, the coaching sessions will be to check in on execution. The third 30 days, if we go from learning to execution, will be for results. Now the salesperson has to execute for measurable results. So the sales manager and the salesperson have to work together to create a model of the results that both believe they can achieve by executing what they learned in the first 30 days. And I do it as a lather, rinse, repeat thing, like a shampoo. (laughs) If the first 30, 60, 90 don't work, repeat one more time. Because you're going to know at the at the 90 to 6-month mark whether this person is a keeper or not. You've got a keeper. How do you use coaching in order to help people to achieve their personal aspirations and their career objectives? Most salespeople, when they're hired, aren't given the top 10 behaviors that are critical to the job. Those top 10 behaviors are a roadmap for success. And so if In the first 30 days while the salesperson is learning, those top 10 behaviors are delineated for them. And I'll tell you what they are shortly, but those top 10 behaviors will be the roadmap to success. Here's the second thing. There should be five key performance indicators or KPIs associated with the execution of those behaviors. So the salesperson who is prospecting, let's say, is the number one behavior. The KPI should be number of first face-to-face meetings that they're executing over the course of a week. In this model of top 10 behavior and top five KPIs, we now create a roadmap for execution and in that growth. That makes a lot of sense. So can you talk us through those top 10 behaviors? Yeah, the first one, I call it lead generation. It's really prospecting, but lead generation now could incorporate social media and the social sciences and things like that. So lead generation is number one. Number two is always building relationships. Are we capable not of just creating relationships, but developing them from tin to bronze to silver to gold. Third is qualifying opportunity. Can we qualify opportunity or is everything the same opportunity in our mind? Fourth, making presentations at close. In the Sandler system, we believe that, that presentations are close above 85%, not because we close 85% of them, but because we've disqualified using the prior behavior, those who are never going to do business with us. The fifth behavior, servicing customers. We have to have a model to make sure that we're farming and getting the most out of our customers. The sixth, account management. Salespeople have to have a plan to manage the growth of their accounts. Seventh behavior, territory development. Now we ask the salesperson to think strategically about their geographic territory and are they developing the full potential of it. Eighth, building a cookbook. And a cookbook is a behavior time model where the top 10 behaviors are plugged into a calendar so the manager can see that they're being executed. Nine, continuous execution. So, or continuous education, sorry. 
the continuous education process where the salesperson is committed to every day to learning something new versus stagnating. And 10, I always use execution of the Sandler selling system. And in the execution of the Sandler selling system, that's where the person grows and gets better at selling. So as you know, I have a particular um, interest in channels. And I fundamentally believe that coaching is an essential component of any good channel manager's role, particularly with things like territory planning, prospecting, qualification or disqualification, and particularly deal midwifing. So I'm really curious to see, have you got any examples of where you've been able to integrate your coaching model within a vendor partner kind of environment? One of the things we find is that most people don't see the relationship clearly between vendor and partner. And so what I ask them to do is to create an environment where common growth can happen. And common growth is we're both working toward a similar objective. Vendor wants to increase their sales. Channel partner wants to increase their sales. That's the common objective. So in that, if we look at that triangle where vendor is at one point, And if we look at where channel partners at the other point, the top point is mutual goals. And so the starting point of coaching would be what mutual goals can we set? And then the vendor has to go into what's in it for me, not for the vendor, but for the channel partner. What's in it for the channel partner to achieve these goals? So it's not just I'm servicing my vendor, but I'm achieving goals too. So that shared encounter is going to be an important part, important starting part of the coaching process. Excellent. Interestingly enough, off the back of the book, Making Channel Sales Work, I'm now developing a program called The Road to Channel Excellence. And that's exactly the starting point. It's uh, personal vision, company vision, shared vision, values, making sure that we're working towards common purpose. Because I see so many organizations go out, try to build a channel, and essentially it's a a dysfunctional marriage. And very often, there's a very quickie divorce that happens because within 90 days, they've gone from enthusiastic to ghosting them. I always put the responsibility for that on the vendor's feet. It's not the partner's. I think it's because the vendor hasn't really taken the time to understand what the partner wants to achieve in their business, what the individual salespeople are trying to achieve. So I'm delighted that you're essentially confirming my hypothesis as well. I'm sure I stole it from you. We've built a box set with my book and your book for many of our channel partners and said, you need to see this as a marriage where coaching mirrors channeling. And the issue is they never saw it that way before until your book came out because your book has coaching baked into it without using the word. And I think that the model is we dovetail very nicely. So well done on your part. Thank you. To be honest, I'm standing on the shoulders of very sore giants. Bill, talk to me about your coach's toolbox, because I think one of the most interesting and potent parts of the coaching process is the fact that there are tools that can be utilized, replicated, scaled. Talk to me about those. One of the most important tools in the book is the continuous coaching loop. And that takes, going back to your initial comment about event versus process, the continuous coaching loop begins with an assessment of the salesperson's current situation. And then moves into the second step, which is the coach's assessment. So now we begin to build a little bit of a gap analysis. The third step is the awareness that a gap exists between what the salesperson sees and what the coach sees. And then the fourth step is a real-time understanding of the action that the salesperson should take. And then the last step before it begins the loop again is 
ownership of feedback, that both parties have an ownership to give feedback to each other that will drive growth. And so for me, that's a significant tool in the sense that it creates a partnership of growth, but it says that growth is a continuous process, not an event. And so both working together toward that end. One of the things I'm really finding powerful about working with Sandler is the fact that there is always this cycle with our organizational excellence material. You go through the planning phase, then the positions, then the people, then the processes, then the performance metrics, and then you accelerate and you cycle back. With the channels piece, it's the same. With the submarine, it's the same. And I think what people forget is that personal development is never an event. It's a journey. And the other piece is that each time you reach your new milestone, it opens up a slew of new questions. So tell me this, in terms of how a salesperson can take greater ownership of their own success, their own career path, the trajectory that they're taking, what's the advice that you're giving when you're coaching in order to ensure that they own that instead of waiting for somebody else to feed it to them? One of my favorite quotes is seek first to understand. And when we look at salespeople, many times they don't do that. They look externally first for their answers. And so if we can get salespeople to focus on the internal, and one of the chapters in the book, I focus on a Japanese engineer called Sakichi Toyota. And Sakichi Toyota came up with a theory of five whys, that whenever you're stuck, if you ask yourself why five times, you will come in with the, come up with the answer, and it'll always be an internal solution. And so if we can get salespeople to raise their self-awareness and situational awareness using the five whys, they will take more ownership of success and less externalize their failures. And I think that's a, that's a big thing. Success is internalized, but failure is internalized too. And when we internalize it, we take responsibility for it. So you know, those things are, go- are going to be very important in the growth model. Well, this then comes back to another fundamental. I have an absolute bugbear. And I'm going to be frank, it really hacks me off. The whole concept of motivational speakers are yes. complete con. I know that a lot of people who brand themselves as such hate the term. But there are a lot of people out there who think that you can motivate. You cannot. Motivation is intrinsic. It's an internal force. And for motivation to take any hold and be sustainable, first of all, it must come from within. And secondly, you must feel like you have control. And so many organizations go horribly wrong because they do incentives that create a short-term boost And then what happens is people either backslide or even worse, they get worse than when the incentive went in. They have competitions, they bribe, they bully, they beat people with a carrot, and they use praise in all the wrong ways. And what I'm really curious about is how coaching helps organizations to create effective individuals, but also cohesive teams so that people own their growth, they own their improvements in performance. and they stop wasting time on these unproductive activities than bad management practices. And when I look at motivation, I'm a disciple of what you just said. The three levels of motivation, incentive, fear, and attitude. The lowest form of motivation, let's reverse the first two, is fear. You threaten people, they will do what they have to do until they're no longer afraid of you. So you have to escalate the threat to murder to get them to do something. And (laughs) obviously not an acceptable result. The next is incentive motivation. And so people will offer 
rewards, cash, prizes, things like that. The problem with incentive motivation is at a certain point, they escalate to the point where they own the company in order to do business. So we look at attitude motivation and we look at it at the individual. A company is the roll-up of the attitudes of its employees. That's where culture comes from. So when we look at attitude and motivation, we take a look at everybody taking responsible for their own head trash, everybody taking responsible for their own beliefs, and then the manager working across teams to blend those beliefs into a culture of high performance. Most managers don't do that and don't get involved with attitude motivation. And that's where the rah-rah comes from because it's fairy dust again. It's sprinkling stuff on them, hoping they'll change. True internal motivation is sitting down, rolling up your sleeves as a manager and working with people on the rule of three and two. Every day of a salesperson's life, they should be working on three professional goals and two personal goals. The three professional goals make them stronger in their job. The two personal goals make them feel better about themselves, thus influencing their attitude. So tell us your story about how David Sandler turned you on that. That's an interesting thing. When I first met Sandler, this goes back to 94, we had a conversation on the phone where he said, Bartler, what, what are you doing? And I said, David, I'm struggling in my business. I'm working 15-hour days. I'm learning as much as I can. I'm sleeping very little, but I believe I can conquer this. And Sandler's comment to me was something that really rocked me because he said, Bartlett, I'm going to predict this. You're going to fail. And I said, David, I'm working 15-hour days on your system. What do you mean I'm going to fail? He said, what are you doing for yourself? And I said, well, I don't have time to do that right now. And he stopped me and said, that's why you're going to fail. He said, I recommend that immediately you find something that makes you feel good about you and find a way to sprinkle it into your day. Well, that night, Gail and I went to the movies to see A River Runs Through It, which is a film on fly fishing. And the more I watched this, I thought, well, this could be intriguing. So I started to take up the sport of fly fishing. And little by little, it became a metaphor for the growth of my business because the better I became at fly fishing, the more proficient I was in my business. And pretty soon, balance occurred. And so it was an interesting shock the way he did it. But here I am 25 years later, and fly fishing is an important part of my business, ironically enough. Have you been fishing this morning? (laughs) <laughs> well, yes, I have. There's a stream right out in the back here that every morning at six when the sun breaks, I'm out in. So thank you. <laughs> I, I'm delighted that you have. I was just holding you accountable. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so tell me this. Who shouldn't coach? People who don't have the respect of their salespeople should not get involved in coaching. It's people who believe that they can pressure success, not groom success. There are a series of managers out there, and fewer and fewer, by the way, but still those who believe that salespeople are meant to be prodded and micromanaged and told what to do, and they create learned helplessness. And in that learned helplessness, coaching doesn't fit that environment. So if you're a manager who believes that the only reason your people work is because you have a stronger whip and bully them into success, you shouldn't even attempt to coach because you're just going to muck it up and do it the wrong way. This brings me to something that's very close to my heart. A while back, I stole two really good ideas and put them together and made them better, I think. Um, (laughs) So what I did was I put together the drama triangle. The drama triangle describes every dysfunctional, broken, dissatisfying relationship you can or will ever have beautifully and elegantly on three points of a triangle. You have the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. And Victims, their favorite refrain is, why me? This always happens. And their other favorite refrain is, save me. I need your help. Then you have the persecutor who jabs you in the face or chest with the pronoun you in capital letters. 
and it attacks you at an identity level, who you are. And then there's the rescuer. And the rescuer helps without boundaries or permission, tends to be mollycoddled, tolerates non-performance, avoids constructive conflict or any conflict of any type. And as a result, they get run ragged. They disenfranchise and disempower people from being willing to do anything because they know that the rescuer will then go and course correct. Persecutors limit risk-taking. And so what they end up doing is doing the minimum necessary to not get a, a falling out. Now, meanwhile, my favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was once asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. <laughs> Fantastic advice. Now, the somewhere else is the winner's triangle. It's all about being authentic. Ego thrives on drama. Being authentic means that you have to be vulnerable. Instead of being a victim, you're vulnerable. Instead of being persecuting, you're assertive. And instead of being rescuing, you're nurturing and empathic. And one of the things that I found really helpful in the course of my coaching is operating from the vulnerable, nurturing, assertive uh, triangle in terms of tackling issues, raising questions, getting permission. Have you had any experience of using that yourself? The drama triangle. Stephen Carbon was a genius in that describing all relationships in our world through that triangle. So when we look at managers, Managers begin many times, bad managers, by attacking someone's identity, you know, Sandler's identity yeah. versus role. And yeah. so you are driving me crazy. You can't do this. You are late for meetings. And once you dent someone's identity, once you ding their feelings about themselves, it's impossible, relatively impossible for them to bounce back because they feel judged, their ego dinged. So what I've coached managers to do is to make sure you stay on the role side of improvement, that you help people improve their role while keeping their identity strong. And it's the most difficult thing because if you were raised in a critical environment, if we look at transactional analysis and you were raised by critical parents and you became critical, it's an easy thing to do to ding someone's identity. And once you do, they don't bounce back and they certainly feel like they're a hostage in a prison. One of the things I learned when I was studying TA is that scripting goes back 75 years before your birth. And it's tough to try and break such a strong hold. What are you teaching people to do in terms of coaching to recognize those inherited scripts versus ones that they've created themselves? Because I think the inherited ones are often even harder to break. People get used to living them. That's why they become scripts. And so I teach 180-degree thinking. 180-degree thinking is, what if the opposite were true? When you take a look at a script you're following and you're following it blindly, what if the opposite were true? And so that's the first step in transition. If the opposite were true, how would you act? If you acted this way, what could the result be? And so the issue is amazing when you get someone to do something they've never done before, and that is look at the opposite side of their, of their attitude. And so once they do that, the next step is to free themselves up to think, well, how should I act because of that? And then the last step is what results could happen that would be different from the ones that are predictably wrong right now? That's fantastic. I'll just steal that. <laughs> 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 Thank you. You'll get credit once. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So tell me this then. If we look at those three Ps again, because I think that's a fundamental part of your process. We're talking about potency, permission, and protection. Much of this stems from the contract between the coach and the coachee. 
So do you mind talking through the contract and how that sets up the three Ps? The challenge of, like in selling, our upfront contract, where in selling, we set up mutual agreement between the buyer and the seller as to what the expectation and outcome is, the coaching contract sets it up the same way. It begins with, again, what expectations does a salesperson have when they come in here? And what are my expectations as a coach? And how do we marry those together so that there is one goal that comes from that? We have to create an environment, a safe environment through the three Ps for potency protection and permission. And the last thing we have to be able to do is to make sure there's an outcome from the coaching session that's actionable. So when we look at whatever we agree to, it can't die in this room. There has to be some type of forward action that takes place over the next 20 days that allow us to impact a change in behavior. So that coaching contract is critical because it takes mystification out of play and it allows both of us to be working on the same issue versus separated by a common language. You've sparked a thought in my mind here, which is about the cadence of coaching. Increasingly, what we're seeing is distributed teams and often much larger teams as companies are trying to flatten their structure or in the channel where channel manager may be working with a dozen or more partners. Talk to me about how coach or a channel manager can set the expectations around the cadence of coaching, but also to make sure that there's consistency and that people stick to that coaching program. Let's look at how we identify who we should coach first in a 20-60-20 model. 20% of any channel or 20% of any sales force will be high performers. They'll be naturally good at what they do, and they will certainly have a system they've developed to do it. Those 20 percenters, as we call them, are going to be successful regardless of what they do. Let's look at the other end of the spectrum. There's another 20 percent who are always low performers. They're always the people who maybe were bad hires, but people who are never performing. They're very good at making excuses as to why the company is wrong and why they're held hostage by companies' bad decisions. And then there's the middle 60 percent, the variable performers. And this is where coaching makes the greatest impact. In the middle percentage there, those 60 percenters, our challenge is how do we begin to separate those people that want to move up toward the upper 20 percent from those people who believe they're stuck down in the bottom 20 percent? So here's what I typically do. For the top 20 percenters, I ask a goal-directed approach. I challenge them to set goals that stretch them, that help them grow, that find the next level, that stretch their thinking. For the middle 60 percenters, I help them set goals to build traction. And building traction means many times they're running in the sand and they're not going anywhere. I help them build off of previous successes. So go small and develop a success track where some small goals will help them achieve bigger goals. For the bottom 20%, I invest very little time there. I have them set small goals that test their buy into the process. I make them prove that they have a commitment to growth. And I work them through the change curve that I went through before of denial, resistance, exploration, and commitment. So that's the first thing is to identify who is coachable. And, and the greatest challenge of any company is that soft middle. And we get that soft middle to perform higher. Next, the cadence. In that soft middle, 15 to 30 minute sessions every three weeks. And so it doesn't have to be hour long sessions that go on forever. It has to be quick hit impact coaching sessions that begin create traction in that group and get them to build off successes. So that's a model that I use to attack any company that has a large sales force today. Okay. And let's talk about goal setting. 
in my experience, I've always struggled with goal setting personally. So maybe you can help me out. Because very often when I've gone through the motions, it feels like a very intellectual exercise. Mm -hmm. And I do have, I've found a workaround, but I'd love to hear your thoughts before I share mine in terms of how do you get people to establish and contract for goals that they really are bought into and will see through? Because you only have to look at how many parking spaces there are on the 5th of January in virtually every gym in the country. 2nd of January, hammered. 3rd, pretty busy. 4th, yeah. By the 5th, you can arrive at 9 o'clock and it's still empty. So true. For me, when we take a look at what, at what you're talking about, the issue is what, why, and impact. What goals are they setting? I don't accept a goal just because someone says it's a goal. I ask them why it's important to them to achieve it. And the last thing, which is true serum, is how does it impact them if they, if they do achieve it? So what, why, and impact are my smoke detectors for any goal? And the number of goals that I reject from people that I'm coaching are legion because they're just intellectual goals that wouldn't have any effect on them even if they achieved it. So why would they even record it? That's one area. I look at goals of stability and goals of growth. Goals of stability, I need to anchor where I am today. And so those goals, if someone tries to anchor where they are today and are building stretch goals, they're not going to work. And so where are they in life? Are they in a, in a time where they're trying to create stability or they just had a time when they're trying to stretch themselves? So those two filters, what, why, and impact, and stability and stretching are the keys to someone setting meaningful goals. Very interesting. Okay. Your solution's way more elegant than mine. Um, and. I'm going to admit it again. I'm a big fan. Talent creates and genius steals. So you're clearly talent, but I've stolen mine. Have you ever come across dumb goals? Oh, most definitely. I look at, I have a good friend of mine who, who rarely exercises and his goal January 1st was, I'm going to run a marathon. And I said, Bob, you're never going to run a marathon. He said, Bill, I'm committed to it. And so he started his routine of running on a treadmill because it was snowing here. And as you said, that's why I was smiling when you said what happens the fifth, the third week, and so on. By the time we got to February, his goal had transcended to walking around the block once. And so <laughs> it wasn't running a marathon. It was just, at the end of the day, walking around the block where he lives one time. And so it's a classic one. Actually, DUMB is an acronym. So my fault for not being clearer. I find that if you set a DUMB goal and then you smarten it later, it's far more powerful and potent. Mm. So. DUM stands for dream-based, uplifting, method-friendly, and behavior-based. Well, I will steal that one, Marcus. Thank you so much. <laughs> so if it's dream-based, you are allowing your aspirations to get free. Uplifting is it has to give you a pet so that you can't wait to do it. It's like when you're recruiting, that you should recruit people for their strengths. And my view is strengths are development areas far more than weaknesses. A weakness is something that you don't look forward to doing. When you do it, you do it badly. You get terrible feedback. You make mistakes. And when it's over, you can't wait to not do it again. <laughs> Whereas a strength is the opposite. You can't wait to do it. Time flies. You do a great job. You get great feedback. The results are good. And when it's over, you can't wait to get your teeth stuck into another round. So the dumb goal first. Make it dream-based, uplifting, method-friendly, and behavior-based. And then you smarten it up and you work on the specifics, the measurements, the attainability. So now you start to refine it and finesse it. 
And all the way through, what you have to do is make sure that you're fully motivated. Because I think most goal setting, it's like target setting. Again, when managers set targets, again, I see this as a major problem. And I think target setting should probably happen in the coaching process, not in the public glare, and certainly not as some announcement from on high. So have you got anything to say on that? Well, yeah, and you triggered a great thought with your beginning of the dumb acronym with DREAM. One thing I find is that most people's dreams get knocked out of them early when they believe they have to deal with reality and not dreaming. And so they don't take the time to sit at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock with their feet on the desk and to dream, what if? They more deal with what they believe is their reality. So when I have a coaching session and I do a lot of executive coaching, my first thought is, tell me about the things you dream about doing and go as big as you want. Don't worry about whether you can ever do them or not, but tell me about those dreams. And it's funny, the number of people who are stuck who haven't dreamt in so long about things like that, that they're really stunned. But when they relax and come up with it, here's what I find. Those dreams have opened the right side of their brain up to creativity. Now what I ask them to do is, let's go back and chunk it down into something that's actionable that would move you in the direction of the dream. Now we begin to deal with some of the things that are real right now. But dreaming is the first part of significant success. And you know, that's where the startup market, startup world has come from, is somebody had a dream. And we've stopped doing that as adults because we just think it's wrong. It's more childlike behavior. Again, I think I'm probably singing to the choir here. But in the parent-adult-child model, I think very simplistically, you can lump the child into it's that immature, emotional side. But actually, the child, I believe, is where the decision comes from. If you look at the structure of the brain, the emotional centers and the decision-making centers are right adjacent to one another. And if the emotional centers of the brain get damaged, people can't make decisions. And I think in the early stages of selling and in management, it is fantastic advice, keep the child in the car. Sure. But there are two major types of child. You have the adaptive child, who comprises the little professor, the rebellious child, the compliant child. But then you have the natural child. And the natural child, children by nature, are curious, autonomous, and self-directed in their learning. I like to introduce the child into planning, pre-call planning. I like to have my natural child in the sale. It needs to be under, under adult supervision. I grant you sure. that. Because sure. uh, it has got me into trouble a few <laughs> times, well, quite a few times. In terms of encouraging that child ego state, that natural child ego state, what are you doing to help your, particularly your executive clients, really tap into that marvelous resource that is curious and can't, it's never satisfied with the answer. It's always asking more questions. The words, I'm curious, are the only two words in the English language that unite the right and left lobe of the brain. And so I'm curious gets the right brain, the creative side, working with the left brain process side to come up with a solution. So in my coaching sessions, there are two key phrases that I use and I have my clients use. One of them is, obviously, I'm curious. What are they curious about? And so that curiosity is going to spark their right brain thinking and their left brain process. But the other one that I think is as important is what if. 
we don't think what ifs anymore. We, we start thinking what is instead of what if. And so I get my clients to start thinking about what if instead of what is. What is is their reality today. What if is what could happen if they dreamt bigger, if they pushed themselves on a much larger plane. So those two thoughts of curiosity and possibility are keys to freeing people up in a coaching session. How do you use coaching to help them solve problems that are in the what is phase or they're in the what is? How do you get them to solve problems using what if? One of the challenges, I believe, is that most people know how to solve their problems. They've just not been able to say it out loud or given themselves permission to say it out, say it out loud. And so the process that I use begins with, what's the problem or goal you're trying to fix? And so let's go to what problem? What's driving this problem is the second question. What actions have you taken so far? What roadblocks do you have to overcome? What's your level of motivation to solve this? What's holding you back from solving it? What's your level of commitment to the success that would be created by solving it? What's the benefit of, a, of solving it? What's the meaningful action you'll take at this time to progress it? And how can I help you achieve that goal? So in those questions, I find that the answers are inside someone and those answers coming out in that, what I'm going to call coaching funnel, allow them to solve their own problem. Now, this is going to blow it for me because I typically come off as a genius when I do that, but now it's going to be out there over in the world to know what I'm doing to them. <laughs> okay, well, we might edit that bit out. <laughs> Thank um, you, Marcus. <laughs> so, I lied. Um, <laughs> one of the things that you talk about in the book is about taking an x-ray. And talk to me about how you introduce the idea to someone who you're going to coach and uh, how the kind of resistance that you get from that. Because I know that in my experience, a lot of people are wary of letting a stranger play around in their head. Sure. It's awareness versus lack of awareness or unawareness that that, that I'm dealing with there. Most of us are aware of roughly 15% of our issues and unaware of the other 85% that are buried deep within us. And what I find is we try to work with the 15% that we know about consciously to get change to occur. And when it doesn't happen, we get frustrated, not realizing that in that x-ray, the 85% that's buried below the surface is where reality happens and where the growth happens. And so my job is to get people to be open to the concept that some things may be happening inside of them that are preventing them from executing the skills they already have. The behavioral assessment is a, is a great example of something that allows me to get inside their head and rattle around a little bit. But I'll go back to something that's important that you said, and that is they have to commit to being vulnerable. Anybody who builds a wall will never take that behavioral assessment, will never want me in there because they're afraid that what I'm going to find is going to cause them discomfort and cause them to resist change. So there are things like that that we have to make sure we develop as comfort before we even attempt to expose that. One of the concepts we talk about in our No Guts, No Gain program, which I have to say is still my favorite program. It's mine too. Yep. It's fabulous. And it's woefully underutilized as far as I'm concerned. Is this concept of reach back and afterburn. And people tend to reach back into their history to a point in their life where they were miserable or they felt put upon or bullied or hurt. And then they drag that emotion into the present. And in my experience, when coaching, sometimes it's, it can trigger those kind of memories and that kind of uh, reach back. What do you do in circumstances where someone who was resistant to begin with open themselves up to 
the profiling or the x-ray and open themselves up to coaching. And now suddenly you're bringing out this can of worms because I'm not entirely sure we're qualified to take them to the psychiatrist count. Most definitely not. I, I never purport that, nor would I ever. There are many of those things that, that I won't touch at all because I'm not qualified and I'll only do damage. But one of the things I find is that in reachback, reachback is typically associated with an event that they've magnified bigger than it is and have dragged into the future as having greater impact. And so if I can get them to understand that it wasn't a script, that is just an event, and dealing with the event as it was then is one thing, but now they're different people today. So with them being different today, how can we take that event and use it to learn as opposed to judge? We use it to judge ourselves and beat ourselves up, which is a very comfortable, convenient way to hold ourselves hostage. Well, this then brings me to the next logical step, which is in TA terms, we have the parent, the adult, and the child. And one of the qualities of the parent is judgment, prejudice, Mm. judging, permission. How do you move them from their critical parent to their nurturing parent. I think it was Gary Harvey came up with it and he said, be your own best friend or maybe I'm stealing your line and uh, he stole it too. But be your own best friend. Stop shooting on yourself and give yourself permission to make mistakes, to fail, to recognize failure isn't a personality defect. How do you get them to move from that critical parent to the nurturing parent? If the coach, and and we'll use me as an example, if 70% of my coaching comes from my nurturing parent and 30% comes from my judgmental or my non-judgmental adult, that means none of it's going to come from critical. So I have to block critical as a coach. So 70% of my dealings with them will be to nurture and to create a safe environment where they can deal with issues like that without feeling judged. And the 30% that's adult will make them want to add more data to it because they realize that data, new data, is going to contradict maybe the event that happened many years ago. So that 70-30 model in nurturing parents and 30% from non-judgmental adult is really the key to any coach. And it's one of the more difficult things that coaches have to do, because we all have that critical side that we jump into. Tricky one, <laughs> Yes, it is. Um, okay, so tell me this. If you were to look back to your 25-year-old self, or how old were you when you took your first management job? Oh, I was, let's see, I was 27. 27. So you're talking to your 27-year-old and you were proffering some invited advice. So you weren't rescuing. What advice would you give them? I would say, see dealing with people where they are as an important part of your job and not a messy part of your job. At that point, you know, I was probably managing people that were older than me. I was in a world where I was working for a consumer products company that had stringent goals for quota and the like. And I was using pressure much of the time to get people to do their job versus the messy part, which was sit down, get in their head, help them realize that they're probably standing on their foot. That's why it's sore and getting them to realize that they have the power to change. That's one thing I would have done. Another thing I would have done is I would have looked at the model skills, knowledge, and application. I would have made sure my people had the skills to be successful, that they knew what to do with those skills. But here's the key to success, that they were consistently applying those skills in the context of the job. So those two things would have enriched my life as their manager and created a growth model for them to develop in. Fantastic thought. I do have another thought that you've just sparked. So how can middle managers use the skills that they're learning in coaching? 
in order to protect their people and coach up the food chain to the higher up in the chain of command. Because I think very often middle managers are squeezed between the idiocy and autocracy of senior management and the people that they're meant to be developing. And how can they use these coaching skills in order to be able to manage up? We have to take out a play we manage up the criticism of our boss. Once we create a critical environment upward, we become judged as rabble-rousers and those people who aren't fit to lead. And so our challenge is strategic thinking. I would encourage every middle manager to spend more time strategic thinking and less time on tactical execution. Strategic thinking allows us to see the big picture and allows us to help our leaders think differently. By the way, most managers spend 10% on strategic thinking and 90% on tactical execution. I would proffer that the opposite would be the case, is that any middle manager should have times in the day where they're focused on strategic thought. The ideal time for strategic thinking, 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock, where feet on the desk, lines closed, just thinking what ifs, thinking big picture, not trying to solve problems. That helps companies grow. I've got to be honest with you, in my experience, those even the, the 10%, is wildly optimistic. <laughs> I don't know whether it's a, a different over in the States, but I've spoken no. to managers who haven't done jobs of strategic thinking I agree. ever since they've been in the role. And no, I agree. Let's wrap up now. I always like to ask about books. What are the top three or four business books that you've read over the last 12 months that you would say, yeah, th- this is just fantastic. It's a must read. Jordan Peterson has written a book called The 12 Rules for Life, and it's about dealing with chaos in your professional and personal life. I I think that is one of those books that really helps you see the balance that's important. Smarter, Faster, Better by Charles Duhigg is another one because it allows you to see that you can move at the pace of your thought, but many times the pace of our thought holds us hostage too. And then I like Paid to Think. And Paid to Think is a book that has a wonderful thud factor to it. And that thud factor means it's about 400 pages. And when you lay it on the desk, it's a great paperweight. But the challenge is it talks about how much thinking does to improve our life situation and help others work. So those are the three that I think for me have had the greatest impact right now. Excellent. And do you have any books coming out in the near future? I'm working on a my second coaching book on executive coaching and some of the experiences I've had with some interesting coaching clients from Hollywood, from major league sports and from the business world should provide some interesting fodder for people if it's ever, if I'm ever allowed to publish it. Excellent. Well, if you need a beta tester for, uh, to read it, then do let me know. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for coming. Final question then. If you were to look back to the start of your sales career, what would be the single most important lesson that you could take in order to kick you off on the right foot? Well, understanding what drives success. Many times I would look at a job description as the driver of success, and that really wasn't the driver of success. It's converting that into behavior and KPIs, as I said earlier, that builds a success profile for the job. So if I were smart enough at the time to say, what are the top 10 behaviors? What are the top five KPIs that I'll be measured on? I would have had more control over, A, how I was viewed by my leaders, as well as the success that I delivered to the company and to myself. Actually, you've just triggered one more question, so I'm going to be cheeky and ask it. What was your best failure? Oh, well, I can remember 
uh, calling on a company and they're no longer in business. And, and so they're, they're called Rockford Hardware. And it was one of the first sales I had as a Sandler franchisee. And so Rockford Hardware was a company that I really had high hopes to be able to train. They had 12 salespeople and I made what I thought was a brilliant sales call. And in that brilliant sales call, we agreed that they would spend roughly $30,000 on training for two months with me. And I came home and I was so excited that I called them back and said, thank you so much for doing business with me. I'm going to throw in 12 coaching sessions for your people because of this. Now, I thought that was pretty nice on me. And what he said is, Bill, that's wonderful. What do 12 coaching sessions cost normally? I said $12,000. He said, we don't want the coaching sessions. Deduct the 12000 from the thirty. That's what we'll pay you. Well, we didn't wind up doing business because of it, but I set the trap, stepped in it. And by the way, I still wake up midnight screaming about that every once in a while. <laughs> you can never blame the prospect for doing something to you. Always me. <laughs> and it's always my fault. Bill, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Delighted with the amount of wisdom and insight you've given. Do you have any events coming up that you'd like to let people know about? We've got it. We have a couple of CEO events on selling with guts. And it's one of these things that, if you go to our calendar, it's at corporatestrategies.sandler.com, that you're going to find out that these are things that CEOs need to know about the, the sales culture they have. And so I would highly recommend them. Anybody who wants to chat about this is welcome to contact me at bbartlett at sandler.com. And I'm happy to answer any questions. But Marcus, you're a gem. What you've done in the area of channel sales and the new levels that you've set for people to think about that differently, I thank you from my part for all you've done in that world. Well, coming from you, that actually means a huge amount. I'm flattered. I'm blushing at the moment. Bill, thank you so much, Bill Bartlett. And it's Marcus Cappy signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Thanks a lot. And if anyone wants to beta test the new channel program, email me at mcauchi, M-C-A-U-C-H-I, at sandler.com. Thank you very much.